Joey. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And before we get too far into things, Phil, I would like to take a minute and uh, I'd like to thank somebody for our sparkling new intro there. How'd you, how'd you like it? I thought it was very good, excellent, most professional, and most enjoyable. Well, I, I agree. And I would like to send a big thank you to friend of the show, Jason Noxon. Uh, Jason's a really talented guy in all sorts of areas, including voiceover. But he has a new podcast coming out. Uh, and it is a really cool show where he interviews all kinds of writers, writers of books and comics and screenplays and everything. And, and he has some really fantastic interviews. That show is called Write Boom, as in writing, write boom. And by the time you hear this episode, that should be live. And I know it's cool because in, I think, the third or fourth episode, he interviews yours truly. Wow. It's got to be pretty cool. I think that's the cool episode show. I will be skipping. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I'll be listening to that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I had a great chat with Jason talking about my writing projects and everything, which was really cool. And uh, he's he's really fantastic in his show. Uh, the, the parts of it I've heard so far are really great. So check that out. Uh, and definitely if you see him on social media, you can like Write Boom on Facebook and all that. Uh, tell him we sent you and tell him thanks for the cool new intro that we have, which uh, just kind of, you know, we like to kind of spice things up once in a while here at After the End. So we thought a little, a little, what do they call it? Like a little polish on the, on the, a little revamp, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Just a tidy up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's always good listening to writers talking about their craft, how they do things. And it's often, there's lots of similarities between them all, but always some wild differences, which I always like. Absolutely. But definitely check that out. And thank you, Jason. Thank you very much, Jason. You're a gentleman and a scholar. It's true. And he's, and he's a genuine fan of the show. You have to like that. I mean, I think it's his best quality, honestly, as he listens to us religiously. Well, you can't go wrong, then. He must be trustworthy, he must be a genius, and he must be talented, and also rather funny. But, I mean, I think anybody who listens to this show fits all of those categories. So, yeah. you know, clearly he's, he's, he fits in well. He's in good company. Yes, to all of you listening, you are almighty. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I, I actually raised my, my cup, then. I've got a cup of tea here. I raised my cup as I said that, so, you know, and salute to you all. Well, I'll, I will do the same. I'm actually drinking tea also, but I am drinking uh, iced tea because I hate hot tea. But So I'm not really as British, well, obviously. Well, no, I'm, I am actually drinking green tea. So I'm not the stereotypical, uh, you know, tea kind of drinking tea thing. You're like a, a new age hipster tea drinking Brit. Is that it? Damn. Uh, <laughs> no, not the hipster. Damn. I've got a beard. It's a little Damn. bit. You do. I was going to say it's, it's a little oh, no, hipsterish. A, I'm looking at my vinyl collection as well. Damn it all. <laughs> It's the hipsters, they get you. They just get into your head and then start twisting you. Uh, that's, uh, oh, yeah. I need to get a monocle, actually. Right, monocle. right. And some kind of <laughs> some kind of arch hat, like a like a top hat or something that you can wear. Oh, crap. Out. Behind me, there is, uh, there is a top hat on the floor. <laughs> oh. Boy, I'm just, I'm just nailing them, right? I'm picking them out and just throwing them at oh, you. Damn it, I am just a stereotype. <laughs> All right, well, oh. we'll forgive you for now, but... Uh, Hipster Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what uh, what we're talking about in today's episode? I, I don't answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how well, about, episode, how about conformist, no. Phil? Conformist, Phil. Is that better? Oh, this is, this is Main, better. Mainstream, Phil? Is that is no, that what you want? <laughs> no, I think worse. Okay, just hipster Phil it is then for right. now. How about this? How about this? Phil, why don't you tell people what's happening in this episode? Thanks, Mike. I will. All right. Okay. Today we will be going after the ending of Danny Boyle's adaptation of The Beach and The Wonderful Gremlins 2, The New Batch. And we'll be doing our top 10 films of 1960. You know, all the hip and groovy, daddy-o, Austin Powers type, you know, you know all the, the lingo. Yeah, except but, if you look at the films of 1960, there's very little of that stuff in it, actually. It is. That's very true, actually, yeah. It's a lot of, like... Like big, deep, complex, dark kind of films. Not a lot of like you know, surfs up daddy o type of movies. Yeah, there wasn't much happiness in lots of the films <laughs> no. in 1960. No, it's not a light year for movies. Yeah, lots of lots of classic films as well, but not all of them made my list. Uh, lots because... of classic films that didn't make my list either. Guess why though? 
because you haven't seen it? Yeah, yeah. This is another uh, one of those episodes that, that showcases my uh, severe uh, gaps in my viewing history, apparently. So well, I will I continue to shame you. you episode after episode, Phil, as you uh, <laughs> realize that you have a, a much greater film history than I do, apparently. Well, it's just I think it, I think the more modern stuff, though, there's lots of the ones you've seen which I haven't. But also I think I know for your number one this this week. I think I know what it is. Oh, yeah. And you can look at the list of 1960 movies. It won't be a surprise at all. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah I think I think like 90s movies and up, maybe I've got you a little beat. But I think yeah. – well, and I think 80s were pretty equal on. But I think 70s back, you've definitely – you take the edge on me. Yeah, but as I say, there's lots of classics in this one. But lots of them didn't make my list purely because while they are classics, they're not my favorites. Even, right. you know, often just because it's the best film doesn't mean it's a favorite film. So right. that's the way the cookie crumbles. That it is. Yes. All right. Well, we'll talk some more about those films a little later in the episode. For now, why don't we kick things off and uh, let's uh, let's start with the beach. Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell us uh, what life is like on the beach? Well, it's not good, <laughs> but uh, it's all we follow. In, it's, yeah, the beach from two thousand, directed by Danny Boyle and based on the book by Alex Garland. We follow an American backpacker play uh, called Richard, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's in Thailand. And he learns of the mysterious beach of pristine, almost mythical place. And he's told this from a guy called Daffy, played by Robert Carlyle. And Daffy ends up killing himself, but he leaves Richard a map to the beach. Uh, Richard ends up convincing a French couple, Francois and Etienne, to travel to the beach with him. And he also meets a couple of Americans who've heard rumours of this, this mythical beach. And also the, all the cannabis which is grown there. Richard ends up giving them a copy of the map, even though he was told not to. Uh, Richard and a French couple, they end up finding the beach. It is surrounded by cannabis plantations with lots of armed guards. They manage to sneak through and meet up with the community, which is led by Sal, played by the always brilliant Tilda Swinton. Uh, she tells them that the farmers let them stay so long as they don't get in the way and that no more travellers come to the island. At this point, Richard goes, oopsie. Um, <laughs> things happen, a shark attack. Oh, yeah, Richard ends up killing the shark, but then another one. Uh, attacks a guy called Christo who's severely injured but Sal refuses to get medical aid because it would mean giving away this location of the beach uh, Richard ends up going a bit crazy the Americans end up arriving but are killed by the cannabis farmers Richard tries to get Francois and Etienne to leave with him because he realises it's all going a bit you know he needs to get away because it's not right there Etienne refuses to leave Christo whose leg has turned gangrenous so Richard euthanizes him by suffocating him Richard ends up getting captured by the farmers who say that they have options. Uh, Sal can either kill Richard and they can all stay or they'll all have to leave immediately and they give Sal a gun. Sal points it at Richard and pulls the trigger but the gun is empty. Haha, those dastardly cannabis farmers tricked her. <laughs> but everybody on the community are shocked that Sal would so quickly turn to murder and so everybody leaves. And the film ends with Richard getting an email from Francois with a photo of the group at Happier Times. And that's the beach. Very nicely done. Thank you. What do you think of the beach, Phil? Are you a, are you a fan of the movie? Uh, no, it left me. I'd, I like Danny Boyle films generally, but this one, I d it didn't click for me. I don't know what it was because I love I love traveling. I love the idea of traveling, going finding new places. I knew it was going to be a dark film going in, but it just didn't gel. I just kept thinking, well, fair enough, but you know, there's lots of other beaches, there's lots of other places. I never quite got why it was such an attraction to be honest right right why the whole the whole macguffin of the thing was the beach and it didn't click with me sure i got you what about you uh you know i've, I've only seen it the once and i think it was back when it came out uh i remember mm -hmm. uh, i don't no, don't dislike it i think i i liked it but that's a very uh, that's a like with sort of some conditions i mean i didn't love it it certainly wasn't great i thought it looked good i thought dicaprio was good but it's just one of those movies i watched it once and i'm Never really needed to see it again. Yeah, yeah. Now I kind of, after doing this, the endings, I kind of want to go back and rewatch it. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I just, uh, I, I didn't really get that though from doing it. I don't particularly want to watch it again, and I don't know. I guess why. the question really is then, why are we doing this movie in, in this episode? Yeah, because we pick films, we make them better, we go after. <laughs> that's the right. That's right. That's and there, there are probably people out there who love this movie, and you know, and everyone loves Leo. So you got to figure this is, yeah, this yeah. is a good one. And there's lo loads of people who love the book as well. Oh right, the there you well. go. I think I enjoyed the book more than the film. Gotcha. I haven't read it. Maybe maybe it's because I read the book first before I saw the film as well. That often can colour you the way you think of a film. Right, book, right. So. But that's uh, that was what happened in the film. So uh, what have you got for your day after? Okay, well, Richard tries to return to a regular life, but he's haunted by the events from the beach. The guilt from euthanizing Christo weighs heavily on him. He still has feelings for Francois, and the emotion of having Sal pull the trigger against his head has him waking up in a cold sweat night after night. 
Deciding he needs to make a change, he packs up his life and disappears. Meanwhile, Francois, back in France, has returned to her life as well. She's less affected by the events, mostly daydreaming about the good days on the island. One day, however, she receives an envelope in the mail. In it, on a blank piece of paper, there's a single handwritten sentence. We can find it again. And that's where I'll leave you for now. Oh, it's Sanadu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, something like that, but maybe slightly different. No, oh, I like that. It's a nice little, uh, a nice little teaser. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. So let's hear what you've got for your day after. Okay. Richard keeps gazing at the photo. He cannot fathom how paradise so quickly turned to hell. He realized he lost a part of himself on the island and he doesn't think he will ever fully recover. He still travels, but he's not sure why. He feels he's looking for something that he will never find. He also has strange dreams, but he can never quite remember them. He ends up going out for the night. He can't remember what city he's in. And then chuckles to himself when he can't even recall what country he's in. But then he's back in the hotel room. He can't remember returning. He felt as if he blinked and he was suddenly back. He has a terrible case of deja vu and he rushes to the bathroom and throws up. Looking at himself in the mirror, he sees words written there. You've done it again. They are written in blood. He looks down at his hands. Blood drips from them. That's my day after. Ooh, yeah. A little, <laughs> a little dark, but kind of classic Phil at the same time, so I like it. Oh, thank you. Well, we'll see where it goes from there. What have you got then for your immediate aftermath? Where, you know, can they find it again? Okay, well, over the next few months, life continues mostly as normal for Francois. She continues to work a menial job, and she's not unhappy, but she's not exactly happy either. Every few weeks, a new envelope arrives. There are no return addresses, no indications of where they're coming from, but she knows they're written by Richard. The notes seem to be tracking a journey of sorts, although whether it's physical or spiritual, she's not sure. They say things like, perfection is worth waiting for. I'm closer than I've ever been. I think I found it. I'm on my way. Heaven is waiting for us. A month goes by after the last note arrives, and Francois begins to worry. She hadn't realized how much she'd begun looking forward to getting a new note in the mail every couple of weeks. After another month goes by, Francois begins to despair and sinks into a deep depression. Then, on a rainy Sunday afternoon, there's a knock at her door. Not thinking much of it, she opens the door to find Richard standing there. I found it, he says breathlessly. And that's the, the immediate aftermath. Ooh, okay. I like it. I thought when he said, you know, perfection is here, I thought it was going to, you know, be a Tremors kind of mashup. No, <laughs> no, no, it didn't, <laughs> didn't go that direction, although that could have made it very interesting. <laughs> okay, no, I'd like to see what's happened. He's turned up in the rain. Okay. All right. Mm. So how about your immediate aftermath then? Detective Teddy Daniels of Interpol drank another cup of coffee that had gone cold. A month had gone by and he was no closer to finding the Moonbeam Killer and another six people had died. As far as they could tell, the murders had started in Thailand, but whoever was committing them had been moving west and had now reached Europe. Daniels had never seen such brutal murders. There's been another one, said one of Daniels' colleagues. The detective sighed and grabbed his coat. It was going to be a busy night. That's my immediate aftermath. Wow. You know, I, I got to say, this may sound weird when you say it out loud, but it's it's so comforting when you do a serial killer in your endings. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, yeah. oh, it's yay, it's classic Phil. It's not hipster Phil. It's classic yeah. Phil. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But it has been a while, but it just seemed to be quite suited because of what he's going He's gone through on the beach. Yeah, no, listen, I, I think, uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of characters. One of the things that's, that's great about your, your serial killer tendencies, Phil, which sounds even worse when I say it out loud, <laughs> is that, you know, you don't, you don't just pick random characters. Usually when you turn someone into a serial killer, it's a character who has a, a justification for that or a reason that that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, he went through some dark stuff. And it, it is a dark film. So I, I think that it's, you know, there's no reason why it can't go to dark places. So that's uh, certainly interesting, though. Thank you. Well, we'll see where it goes from there. Yes. So what's happened then? So with you, Richard's just turned up on the doorstep. So what's happening for your long term? All right. Well, Richard doesn't even take the time to explain. He tells Francois to pack up all of her most valuable belongings and some clothes and then rushes them off to the airport. While they're waiting for their flight, Richard finally explains. He spent the last year working on various fishing boats and sailing vessels, trading his day labor for the ability to travel freely across the seas. The whole time he spent searching for another island. One that would allow them to live like they did on the beach, but without the threat brought on by drugs and armies. He came across perfect locations that had no food sources, beaches where the nearby freshwater was contaminated, beaches in disputed territories, all kinds of locations that were beautiful but wouldn't offer them a sustainable life. 
Finally, on a trip off the coast of Laos, he discovered an uninhabited island with numerous native vegetables and fruits, fertile soil, plenty of shelter, and a beautiful beach. Twenty-seven hours later, after two plane trips and a boat journey, Richard and Francois land on one of the most beautiful beaches they've ever seen. Now they can share their life in the only place they were ever truly happy. Oh, very nice. Thank you. I will say, there's an after-the-credits scene. Oh. So we'll get to that after your long term. I look, look forward to that one. Yes. The uh, well, thing I must say, though, I didn't think, you know, the finest paradise, but, you know, what are they going to do for, you know, sun protection, sun cream? You know, you're going to run out. But anyway. Uh, well, it turns out that in, amongst her valuables, Francois packed 372 tubes of sunscreen. So they're they're covered for a while. Oh, that's okay, though. Yeah. <laughs> you got to think of these things because, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you can burn so easily. It's true. It's true. Mm. All right, so how about your long-term, Phil? Let's hear what's going on with this moonbeam moon killer. Okay. It's just you and me now, Cole Daniels. We can sort all of this out. Just give yourself up. He walked slowly around the church. He attracted the killer, a man by the name of Richard, to this old building. It wouldn't be long before he'd bring the murdering son of a bitch to justice. Richard didn't know what was happening. Why was this policeman after him? Why did he keep losing time and finding blood in his hands? What had happened to Francois and Etienne? The doctor looked in at the new patient. The patient was muttering to himself about giving up and why he kept doing this. Richard Teddy Daniels had been brought in after he was found screaming and shouting on the streets of Bangkok. He had had a massive psychotic break and kept raving on about how he was a policeman chasing down a murderer who was also himself. Mm. Dr. Banner felt he was a lost cause. Oh, Dr. Banner. That's my long term. Wow. So going some interesting places with all that. It was all in his head. I see that. <laughs> yes. It's a cliche, but it's a good cliche that I happen to like. I like it. I like that Dr. Banner is involved. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know. He's, he's going to turn him into a psychotic Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think. Cool. Twist him. Leonardo the Hulk. <laughs> I like it. Okay. So what's your, oh, the film's over. Oh, no, what's this? There's a, a post-credit scene. Right. Speaking of Marvel, uh, here's the after credit scene. So it's several years later. Richard and Francois are happy and living a blissful life. Despite living on an island for almost a decade, they don't seem to have aged at all. Then one day, on the far side of the island, a plane crashes onto the beach. <laughs> As Jack, Kate, Sawyer, and many others pull themselves from the wreckage, Richard and Francois become keenly aware that life on the island is about to change. Gosh, it's almost like the other people got lost. <laughs> <laughs> you you could say that. <laughs> oh, no, I like that. Yeah, I didn't think about doing that. Thanks. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I kind of I, I started off going in that direction like a little bit more like like for the whole ending. And I was like, I don't want to get into the whole mythology of Lost. But I couldn't get the idea out of my head. So I thought, I know. Yeah. After credit scene. Excellent. No, I like that. All right. Very cool. Well, do you have any trivia for us about the beach? I do. Uh, Danny Boyle wanted Ewan McGregor to play the lead because they had worked together in Trainspotting. But the studio cast uh, DiCaprio before Boyle had a chance to do anything. Uh, Ewan McGregor blamed the studio but didn't speak to Boyle for years, saying he felt betrayed at the time. But they sorted it all out in 2015, so, you know, 15 years later. Right. And they made Trainspotting 2. Danny Boyle asked uh, Leonardo to lose £20 for the film. Uh, DiCaprio was paid £20 for the film because of the immense success of the movie Titanic. Yeah, this is like, I think, and like the second movie he did after Titanic, if I'm not... That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And DiCaprio had originally planned to play the lead character in American Psycho, but his salary demand was too much, so he ended up doing The Beach instead. Hmm. The map that Daffy gives to Richard was made by Alex Garland, who wrote the book that the film was based on. And the island was chosen by location scouts, uh, not because of its outstanding natural beauty, but because it was easy to landscape, so they ended up clearing lots of the beach and planting non-native palm trees which ended up changing the habitat forever uh they because they got rid of all these the original trees and cleared the beach when there was a big storm after shooting it washed away loads of the sand and damaged the reef caused loads of environmental damage and environmentalists responded by taking legal action against fox studios and government officials and other people and ended up the court penalized the film company for unnecessary ecological destruction and ordered them to repair all environmental damage Wow. To Maya Beach. I did so. not realize that. I think, you know, vaguely yes. it sounds familiar now that you mention it about something, some kind of lawsuit about the movie, but I didn't realize that's what it was. So, wow. Well, yeah, yeah, so it just ended up, the end of, the film was about, you know, you know, finding a beautiful place in nature and they ended up wrecking it basically. So there you go. Right. Crazy. That's the beach though. All right. Very nicely done. Okay. Well, let's move on then to one of my favorite 80s sequels, Gremlins 2, The New Batch. It is a good sequel, very good sequel. Yeah, it, it, it is actually part of my trilogy of 
80s sequels that I like better than the originals. Um, and there's three of them. And they are Gremlins 2, The New Batch, yeah. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Okay, yeah. yeah. And and this one this one it fits sort of because it's kind of an equal like, but Back to the Future 2. Um, I mean, Back to the Future is a classic film. Obviously, yeah. it's, it's probably the, the best movie of the trilogy. But I've seen Back to the Future 2 probably like a hundred times. I just – I really love that movie. There's something about it that really resonated with me when I was a teenager and I just watched it over and over and over and over and over again. So uh, these are three movies that I really like because they go in very different directions, uh, especially with Gremlins and Bill and Ted. The second movie's both – sort of take very twisted sense of humor approaches to them. Yeah, well I was going to say all those sequels, they all they all follow on from the film that's gone before, but they do they do something different instead of just rehashing things. Right. I mean, the some of the basic elements are obviously there, but yeah, they go to different places, new characters, they get more complex or different things going on, different Oh, I, I can see what you mean with all of them. Yeah, yeah, so they kind of those three films sort of are very near and dear to my heart. Okay, so do you want to run through the events of Gremlins 2? Sure thing. Gremlins 2, The New Batch, 1990, directed by Joe Dante, who also directed the original film. Yep. Uh, stars Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, John Glover, and the late, great Christopher Lee. So, in the sequel, Billy and Kate, our heroes from the first movie, have moved to Manhattan, where they work for Daniel Clamp, uh, who was played by John Glover. He is an eccentric billionaire. He's brilliant in it. He, yeah. I, I, always li- I always like John Glover. Uh, absolutely. He's fantastic. And he's really good in this movie. Yeah. They work in the super technologically advanced Clamp Tower. Meanwhile, Gizmo the Mogwai's owner has died, and he ends up in Clamp's research labs in the same building. Billy discovers this and frees him, but, of course, Gizmo gets wet and spawns a bunch of mischievous Mogwai. They torture Gizmo and eat after midnight, turning into gremlins. They end up in the lab and drink all kinds of serums, which gives us a bunch of new kinds of gremlins, including a genius talking gremlin, nicknamed Brain Gremlin. Not officially, that's just what people call him. (laughs) Uh, You don't call him that in the movie. Uh, a spider gremlin, a gremlin made out of pure electricity, and even a she-gremlin. Billy, Kate, and the visiting Mr. Futterman manage to get all the gremlins in the lobby of the building after they've caused much havoc, and the gremlins perform a musical number in the form of New York, New York, which sounds really out of context, but it's very funny in the movie. (laughs) A rainstorm keeps them from being destroyed by sunlight. That was the plan, was to have the sun destroy them. Uh, So Billy has Mr. Futterman spray them all with water and then looses the electricity gremlin, which he had had trapped in an answering machine, on them, frying them all, except for the she-gremlin and possibly the brain-gremlin, because that's never quite cleared up. Uh, Clamp, meanwhile, who has fled the building, busts back in with the police and sees that it's all over. So he gives Billy and Kate promotions, and they go home safely with Gizmo. And that is Gremlins 2. A nice uh, synopsis of it all. Yeah, it's... uh... When you listen to it describing it, you're going, what <laughs> yeah, it, the hell is it, this film about? But it all makes sense when you're watching the film. Right, right. It definitely sounds a little yeah. bat guano crazy when you are it's like reading when, it. like when they keep the electrical ground when it's on the answering machine. <laughs> right. What the? Did that work? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it, it sounds incoherent. But if you've seen the film, you know it's very funny. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, it this is just sort of lovely. to refresh people's memories. Yes. No, that's uh, – some great moments, and I did like the fact they did t- introduce the, the different types of gremlins. Yeah, yeah. That's part of what makes it fun, I think. That's a good idea, isn't it? Indeed. All right, Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell us what you have for your day after. Okay. Billy, Kate, and Gizmo have a few days off as Clamp Tower is renovated from the damage. They have become minor celebrities, and a number of reporters interview Billy and Kate over the strange goings-on. Not wanting Gizmo to become a target of the media, they go with the Clamp PR and say that there were electrical problems... While all the creatures that were seen on TV were just a new promo for Grandpa Fred's horror show. Meanwhile, in an undisclosed military base somewhere in the USA, a large metal crate is unloaded. The label on it shows it has come from Clamp Tower. Something within begins to move. And that's my day after. Hmm, that sounds slightly menacing. Yes. <laughs> okay, what have you got for your day after? All right, well, Billy and Kate are excited to be reunited with Gizmo. With their new positions in Clamp's organization and the raises that come with them, they rent a new, larger apartment with a room all for Gizmo. They set him up with a sweet little Gizmo pad so he can live a happy life without having to leave the apartment very often. Billy and Kate return to their jobs, and life seems to be going pretty good. Clamp knows them both by name now, and he often sees them and stops and chats with them in the building. When Clamp decides to run for president, he enlists Kate and Billy to help run his campaign. (laughs) They are honored, and so they join the campaign and become impassioned supporters of his run for president. 
One night, when working late, Billy discovers a hidden room off of Clamp's office by accident. He stumbles in and discovers who Clamp's main advisor is. Brain Gremlin. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't see that coming. See that? I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It should be noted that there is no, uh, there's no correlation between you know Daniel Clamp running for president and any anybody in real life who might have been an eccentric billionaire who ran for president. That's There's no... No, no. And it's funny you should mention that because there might be some slight similarities between our... <laughs> yeah, just only minor bits, passing bits. Right. Well, let's, let's see. Let's see what yeah, happens. I, I wasn't inspired by any real world oh, events okay. or anybody who actually exists. Good so to know. Either, so. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't you share your immediate aftermath with us then? Okay. Billy and Kate are now back at Clamp Tower. They've been promoted and are some of Clamp's most trusted aides. They have a nice pay rise and have more responsibility, which they enjoy. Uh, Clamp tells them that he realises he's out of touch with the common man, but he feels that Billy and Kate will stop him appearing foolish. They feel a little bit offended, but they understand what he means. He then says he is thinking of running for president. Billy and Kate look at each other in panic. Kate ends up saying, let's put a pin in that, and changes the conversation quickly to the reported request from the military to speak to them. Clamp, easily distracted, says go for it. And a few days later, a man in a dark suit arrives. He introduces himself as Agent Coulson and says the military need the help of Billy and Kate. He explains how some of the surviving gremlins had been taken to, by the military to study. They had planned to turn them into weapons, drop a gremlin in enemy territory and let them destroy them. But too late, the researchers realised there was no way to control them and they reproduced at an exponential rate when a fire was started and the sprinkler system kicked in. We lost contact with the base 12 hours ago. I like it. I like it. You're definitely got a little bit of a Marvel uh, bent going today, huh? Yeah, it's just the names. Yeah. There's no, no connection. Oh, with it, but I, I just, uh, I always quite like it, though. Well, it could be Agent Coulson. and Shield. Yeah, why not? Want to get hold Absolutely. of a gremlin? That yeah. works. Yeah. Okay, that was my immediate aftermath. What have you got for yours? Okay. Well, Billy immediately goes on the defensive, looking around for a weapon, but Brain Gremlin interrupts him. Wait, wait, he says. Can't we talk about this like civilized, sentient creatures? Billy hesitantly agrees, and Brain Gremlin explains that he's been living the last few months very happily with the She-Gremlin, and they're quite content to live their lives without causing mischief. Oh, my God. I just, uh, just had a horrible vision in my head. <laughs> oh, oh, get out of my head. <laughs> it turns out that female gremlins are pretty level-headed, and with his superior intellect, neither of them really wants to cause trouble. They just want to live their lives in peace. So he's been working behind the scenes, helping Clamp increase his fortune, and also helping to plan his presidential run. Billy sits down, stunned, unsure of how to respond. Finally, he says, all right, I believe you. Side note, Billy's always a little naive, but, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I believe you. I'm going to give you a chance. But if I even get a hint that you're up to something evil, I will burn this whole building down. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, okay. Mm. Yes. Oh, I like that. Thank you. All right, Phil, so why don't you give us a, bring us home. Let's see what's going on with this, uh, this potential gremlin invasion and, and give us your long term. Okay, my long term. Okay. You ready? Here we go. America was lost. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Is that the whole thing? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, once the gremlins found their way into the sewer systems, they spread at a frightening rate. Millions of people died in the first year. As time went on, the gremlins became more vicious and started eating their victims. Ew. Survivors moved to more desert-like areas and lived in open camps. The rest of the world quarantined America. Mexico and Canada built huge walls armed with giant UV lights to keep the gremlins out. Gizmo was lonely. Billy and Kate had both died in the Battle of New York. Oh. He also felt responsible for the terrible tragedy that had happened to the human race. He began researching his own kind. There were many myths and legends, but he finds out that any mogwai or gremlins created will die if the prime mogwai dies. Oh. Gizmo nods to himself. He had a feeling that that would be the case. Here's the prime mogwai. He looks at the clock. The sun will be rising shortly. He packs away his most prized possessions and then goes outside to watch his first and last sunrise. Oh, Phil, you beautiful bastard. That was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> like, I'm much. mad at you for killing Gizmo. That's why I called you a bastard. But at the same time, that's beautiful. Yeah, I like, the world. I like it. I like it. I mean, that that's you know pretty tough stuff, but I but I dug it. Yeah, it's what it's what Gizmo would do. Yeah, for sure. Okay, what have you got done for your long term? I uh, imagine it'll be a bit happier than mine. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. Well, a few months later, Daniel Clamp realizes he doesn't actually want to be president and drops out of the race, mostly because he realizes there's a good chance he might actually have been the worst president in the history of the country. So instead, he uses the publicity from his aborted run to multiply his profits tenfold. Billy and Kate become good friends with Brain Gremlin and the She Gremlin when they realize that the two of them really just do want to live a happy life together. Life continues for Billy and Kate and Gizmo and Clamp, but after a year or two, Billy realizes that Brain Gremlin is depressed. 
His color has turned gray, he barely talks, and his relationship with the she-gremlin seems to be on the rocks. Billy realizes the brain gremlin feels trapped, living in a secret side office in an office building with no chance to leave for fear of being discovered. He convinces Clamp to buy a private island for Brain and the She-Gremlin with a fully stocked beach house for them to live a happy life together. Thankful for Billy's help, Brain rewards him with a gift of $10 million. He'd been investing money the whole time he'd been working for Clamp, and he wanted Billy to have some of it as a thank you gift. Elated, Billy and Kate resign from Clamp Industries and return to Kingston Falls with Gizmo in tow, where they can start a family and lead a rich, satisfying life. Uh-huh. Very nice. <laughs> I don't know really if putting uh, gremlins on a beach house, you know, on the beach where there's water is a well, good idea, but... Well, there's blinds. I wonder if salt water affects them the same as normal water or drinking water. I don't know. I mean, really, what happens if you drop a gremlin into the middle of the ocean? I mean, theoretically, it would just it would just multiply into infinity, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, your oceans would just turn into gremlin, like gremlin seas. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Good God. If anybody's got a gremlin out there. Which brings me to my after the credits scene. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. I did think of like, my after the credits scene. Brain gremlin and she gremlin are living on the island, and suddenly a plane crashes on the other side of the island. <laughs> they realize they're not going right, to be alone right, much exactly. longer. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, Phil, tell us do you have a new batch of trivia for Gremlins 2? Oh, that was brilliantly done thank you i'm a little proud of that one i have to admit that's that's a very good one i enjoyed that thanks one. <laughs> much better than my usual painful attempts <laughs> yeah i didn't i didn't squirm you know, the sound of that one. <laughs> ouch ouch <Harsh>. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that one worked beautifully thank you thank you okay yes sylvester stallone gave permission for gizmo to imitate rambo in the film cool which i, I, I like the fact they actually checked with him that was nice joe dante directed the howling uh christopher lee apologized to joe for starring in The Howling 2. So I think that was quite nice that Christopher Lee apologized. Yes, indeed. The opening aerial shot of New York City was stock footage from Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, which I quite like. Uh, Mohawk was a recreation of Stripe from the first film and was voiced by the same actor. I think it was Frank Welker. Yep. Yeah, Frank Welker did the voice of that. And the, the Wilhelm scream was used uh, when a victim is covered by gremlins and he falls off a ledge. Oh, I gotta love the, gotta love the good old Wilhelm scream. You've got to point it out whenever it happens. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's going to wrap up our endings for The Beach and Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Oh, we could do a mashup, Gremlins 2, The New Beach. Oh, we could not. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's our endings for that. Let's move on then to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein we take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your famous time-traveling Wayback Machine and tell us what the world was like back in 1960. 1960. Most of it was black and white, but some of it was in color. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yes. Uh, 1960, the British Prime Minister was Harold Macmillan. And the U.S. president was uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, so some of the things that happened, we had a U.S. senator by the name of John F. Kennedy. He announced his candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination. So I don't know how that played out. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember hearing much about that guy. No, he's got a kind of a good name, JFK. He doesn't sound like the kind of guy they'd make movies about, though. No, no. no. Uh, Jacques Picard and Dan Walsh descended into the Marianas Trench in a bathyscape called Trieste. They went to a depth of 10,911 meters, uh, which is 35,797 feet. Uh, that was the lowest point I think anybody's been, which is pretty good. It always amazes me there's so much of the ocean we still haven't explored. I have to say, I, I've been lower than that once when the 49ers lost the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Oh, boom, boom. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Continue. Ignore, ignore the man behind the microphone. <laughs> this was interested me. I didn't realize they'd been doing this for so long. But the first CERN particle accelerator became operational in Geneva, Switzerland, and might have been, you know, started the whole Mandela effect hmm. and changing reality as we know it. Right. Elvis returned home from Germany after serving in the military for two years. Has there ever been a film about Elvis in the military? No, and there hasn't really. I mean, That's, I'm surprised. Yeah, but let's put a... Anybody makes a film, we, we said it first. That's so right. You're always, you're right. always money. Yep. You'll take 10, 15%? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, uh, 15 is good. 15%. Because we, yeah. we got to split it, so. Yeah, okay, 20%. We'll have 20. <laughs> yeah. uh, Alberto Corda took that iconic photo of Che Guevara in Havana, and students everywhere, you know, sighed with the relief to finally have something to put on their wall. <laughs> right. <laughs> the U.S. launched the first weather satellite. Domino's Pizza was founded, and again, students uh, everywhere went, oh, nice one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Soviet Union shot down a few U.S. spy planes. Well, actually, quite a lot U.S. spy planes back then, which was surprising. Some of the pilots were captured. Some of them were killed. 
Uh, luckily, though, the world didn't blow up, but we did have the Cold War. Harper Lee published To Kill a Mockingbird, and for those who've been listening, we, we didn't... And after the ending for the film, back in episode 37, uh, the newly named Beatles began a 48-night residency in Hamburg, but like this John F. Kennedy chap, I don't know how well yeah. they did. Can't imagine as much yeah. of a future there. No. Nah. I mean, they won't be on as many T-shirts as Shea Guevara will. No, I mean, your face like Shea, you've got to be on a T-shirt. Right. Uh, the U.S. submarine USS Sea Dragon surfaced through the Arctic ice cap at the North Pole. This was the first submarine to ever do so. And back then, you know, the people who were going to make the Fast and Furious films went, oh, we could use that at some point. Right. And a little cartoon by the name of the Flintstones premiered. Love it. Good stuff. Yes. Uh, actually, this surprised me, the birth this year, because I didn't realize all these people were the same age. Uh, so born in 1960, we had Michael Stipe, David Lynch, Oliver Platt, Mark Rylance, Kelly LeBrock, Hugo Weaving, Jeremy Clarkson, Bono, Jeffrey Dahmer, Jane Lynch, David Duchovny, Sean Penn, Antonio Banderas, Hugh Grant, Colin Firth, Melissa Leo, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Tilda Swinton, Stanley Tucci, Daryl Hannah, Julianne Moore, and Kenneth Branagh. Wow, that's a heck of a list. Yeah, some of them have aged really well. Some of them have aged. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also lost uh, Margaret Sullivan, Neville Shute, and Clark Gable. Mm. And film debuts in 1960, we saw Alan Bates, Bruce Dern, Albert Finney, Jane Fonda, Peter O'Toole, Robert Redford, and Susanna York go in front of the camera on the big screen. Robert Redford? I don't know anybody who's a gigantic Robert Redford fan. Do you? No, I know. Is it, is it pronounced Robert Redford? I thought it was Robert Reed. <laughs> I think it is. We haven't, we haven't mentioned him in a while, so I'm glad we got him uh, in this episode. Yeah, for those uh, just joining us, go back to... You know, some of us. It was like, yeah, like the, the first like 10 or 12 episodes, I think Robert Redford came up in like every single episode. Yeah. Good times. I don't know good how, times. You know, I think he paid us an awful lot of money, but we never got the Yeah, check. it was product placement. That's all. Yeah. Because yeah. Robert, Robert Redford, you know, he, he needs to advertise on a podcast. Yeah. Robert Redford product placement. Right. So 1960 then, that was what happened. That's who was born, died. Uh, Mike, what did you think of the films of 1960 going through the list? Well, I think I wish I had seen more of them. Uh, as with many previous years, I have seen uh, about five films that I can truly say I remember seeing. Uh, the rest of them I, I have not. So uh, and that includes some big ones, unfortunately. But the so my top, my first five, ten through six, are going to be movies that I have not seen but I want to see. And then my top five will be movies I've actually seen. So okay. kicking off things at number 10 is La Dolce Vita, which is a film by the uh, revered filmmaker Federico Fellini. And I have to say that my Fellini viewing knowledge is limited to, well, pretty much nothing. So uh, <laughs> I need to get schooled up in Fellini. He's considered one of the greats. Uh, and La Dolce Vita, of course, is one of his most famous films. So I need to check that out, but I have not seen it yet. So that's my number 10. Fair enough. Okay, my number 10 is Peeping Tom which was a psychological thriller, almost a horror film directed by Michael Powell, who you mainly know from Powell and Pressburg, you know, lots of those kind of films. But this one deals with a serial killer uh, who murders women by using a portable movie camera. It's got big, long legs, and he, he says he's going to film them, and then there's a big spike comes out of one of the legs, and he kills people with that. But it's very suspenseful, dark, and twisted, and that's my number 10. Yeah, I want to see that one, actually. It sounds really cool, and I have not, unfortunately. Some great shots in it, really good. I bet. Yeah. All right. Well, my number nine is uh, going to continue my foreign film education, uh, and it is Breathless by Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, I have a feeling it will not be the last time we hear about this movie <laughs> <laughs> on this segment, um, but I, I have not seen it. I'm familiar with it. I know it's studied in film school. I have seen clips from it. I know what the film is about. You know, I, it's a movie I know about. I've just never sat down and watched the whole thing from start to finish, and I, I know it's a classic, so... Uh, I really need to get on, on top of that. Yeah, well, most of the people out there will know Breathless, even if you haven't seen it. There were lots of It's been referenced in lots of things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's some iconic images as well. Right. Uh, okay, then. So my number nine, you just mentioned it before, was La Dolce Vita. Oh, very cool. Yeah, Fellini, Marcello Mastroianni, and the beautiful, voluptuous Anita Ekberg. And it follows this this guy in Rome. And it's the time, it's sort of, it's almost like episodes, but they all tie in. And it's it's beautiful to watch. And it's 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 a hard one to explain, really, but it is. It deserves all the 
the lovely words that have been written about it. And yeah, check it out if you haven't seen it. Which we know I have not, so I will (laughs) get on that. All right, well, my number eight isn't quite a classic. In fact, it was kind of a forgotten film until about a decade ago or so, but it is Ocean's Eleven, the original, starring the original Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, Of course, it's kind of a a heist movie that was the inspiration for Steven Soderbergh's very popular trilogy of Ocean's Eleven, 12, and 13, all of which I enjoy quite a bit. Um, But I've never seen the original. I know it's not necessarily a a real heavyweight of a film, but I I do want to see it. Obviously, I like the, the kind of the Rat Packers that are in it, and I would like to see how it differs from the remake. I understand that they don't have a lot in common, so I'm curious to check that one out. So that's my number eight. Yeah, I've seen it, and it's great watching them all together. But it's it's uh, it's a very flabby kind of film. It just doesn't. It could do with could have done with being a bit more editing on the script and also on the film itself. But it's yeah, it's worth watching if you like the rap pack, which I do as well. Yeah, I noticed the running time was two hours and seven minutes, and I was like, uh, really? Yeah, you, could, <laughs> could, you could cut it way down because there's just bits of it. You just go, well, you're just being all, you know, it's all egos here. Now, right, so. right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, my number eight is Village of the Damned, mm. an adaptation of The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham. And it's all about the town where all, the, all this, the inhabitants fall asleep. And then all the women, when they wake up, all the women are pregnant. And they all have these kids who have got blonde hair, weird eyes, and all really scary and creepy. And we start realizing it's all to do with aliens. And they want to take over the world. And they're all telepathic. And they know what you're thinking just by looking at you. And you're going, no, but it's done really well. You're wondering how they're going to beat them because... If you have any plans to beat them, they you know they can read your mind, and I love the way it just builds, and you're there going, well, you, you, you're trying to figure it out for yourself, and then when they, the people who come up with an idea, you're going, that's absolutely amazing. Why didn't we do that? Thinking that myself, but it's uh, very suspenseful, very creepy, and you can see why it's been remade a few times. Yeah, I've got a real soft spot for the John Carpenter version. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I've never seen the original actually, and it, it probably could have been on my list of, of films I want to see from this, but I, I didn't. I just didn't include it. But it's certainly uh, one I do want to see. Yeah, definitely worth having a having a watch of that one. All right. Well, my number seven is the first of two films that I'm going to tell you I haven't seen, and most people will be like, "What? Come on, really?" Um, <laughs> and it is The Apartment by Billy Wilder, starring. What? Come on, star- seriously, <laughs> seriously. Starring Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Um, I won't say too much about it because, A, I haven't seen it. And, B, again, I have a feeling maybe it might show up on your list. I don't, I don't know. Ooh, spoilers. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just predicting. I'm just guessing here. Uh, but it's it's obviously rightly regarded as a classic. And, again, it's another movie I, 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 you know, I've read about it. I know all about it. I've just never actually sat down and watched the whole thing. Excellent. Okay. Uh, well, my number seven is uh, a Roger Corman film. It's The House of Usher, also known as The Fall of the House of Usher or The Mysterious House of Usher. And it's based on... Return to House of Usher, Son of uh, House of Usher. Yeah, hey, isn't that The House of Usher? (laughs) Bride of the House of Usher. Yeah, it's it's based on a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. It was the first of eight Corman films where he based them on the works of Poe. This one stars Vincent Price, Mark Damon, and Mina Farhey. And it's all about this desolate mansion where this guy goes with his fiancée and he meets her brother, played by Vincent Price, who says that oh, everybody in the House of Usher is, is cursed, and she ends up getting, well, people, you know, things happen, people get buried alive, or do they, and then it's all creepy, and you're going, oh my God, and Vincent Price is all, oh, Vincent Price, I can't do an impression of Vincent Price, surprise there, but it's all dark, <laughs> twisted, and very claustrophobic, and you're going, no, what's going to happen, and then it happens, and you're going, ah, and it's brilliant. Very cool. Uh, shockingly, I have not seen that one, so uh, we'll just move on. Um, <laughs> my number six is the other one I'm embarrassed to admit I've never seen. And again, I've seen parts of it. I've definitely seen even extended parts of it, like on TV and stuff. But I've never sat and watched the whole movie. So it is Spartacus, starring Kirk Douglas, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, <sighs> one of the more famous films in, I don't know, film history. Uh, and The Chariot Race and all that stuff. I know, Phil, I know. I've, so, I've just, sorry, I'm just looking up uh, for new uh, New podcast co host yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. Have you seen Spartacus? Uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, understandable. You've probably seen, seen – it's one of those films loads of people have seen bits of it. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's been on TV a million times. I've caught sections of it. But again, I've yeah. never watched it from start to finish. So that is one I really do want to see. I've had it in my hands. <laughs> I just haven't gotten – found the time to sit down and watch it from start to finish. So one of these days. Oh, okay. Well, you've, you've got a treat ahead of you for that one. I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay, my number six is a remake of Akira Kurosawa's 1954 film Seven Samurai. This one is The Magnificent Seven, directed by John Sturgis, starring Yul Brynner. 
Eli Wallach, James Coburn, Steve McQueen, uh, Horst Buchholz. See the ones: James Coburn, Brad Dexter, Robert Fawn, and Charles Bronson. It's we had the recent remake again, but this one you got so many cool guys in there, and it builds up and oh, amazing. You know, gunfights. You got the great characters. You got the knife man. You got oh, it's a great western. Just oh, I can't really say much more because it's just so good. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, if you haven't seen Seven Samurai, what are you doing? You know, go out there now and watch that as well. But you know, it's Magnificent Seven is equally as enjoyable. It's a classic example of you know, some remakes do work, and this is one of them. I I agree actually, which is a little bit of a spoiler, but we'll leave that alone for now. Um, moving <laughs> into my top five, we have the films that I have actually seen now. Okay, and my number five is. The Lost World, starring Michael Rennie, Jill St. John, uh, yes, yes, Claude yes. Rains, and a bunch of other really cool people. And basically, it's a, it's an update of a, a, a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story about, uh, well, a lost world with dinosaurs and strange creatures. And it's just got that really great 1960s sci-fi feel to it. It's, you know, modern-day explorers traveling back into this world where they're, you know, outmatched by dinosaurs. And uh, it's got some, you know, cheesy-slash-wonderful special effects. And uh, one of those movies I saw as a kid. I've seen it, you know, since then, and and uh, I just really enjoy it. It's it's cheesy, but it's fun. So, uh, you know, it, it definitely takes me back. You know, watching it. No, I know. I know what you mean. That's the same thing with me. It was on TV, I think, last year. Yeah. And uh, I, I ended up sitting watching it and loved loved all of it. I mean, you got the the hokey hokey special effects with like this the big spider, I think, at one point as well. Right. And that's the one. Yeah. I just and you're going, oh my god! But you still you still got a big smile on your face when you're watching it. Absolutely, an excellent choice. Okay, my number five is one you've mentioned. It is Breathless or A Bout de Souffle, and it's directed by Jean-Luc Godard, stars Jean-Paul Belmondo and Jean Seberg, Jean Seberg, sorry. And it's uh, it's all about a criminal who uh, steals a car, kills a policeman, goes on the run, meets up with his Jean uh, Seberg, and they have. A bit of a lovely time together, and and it's just it's just moments with these people, and it's beautiful, and it's uh, it's one of those films you need to you need to have seen, and I know you'll be seeing it at some point, Mike. I will indeed. It is yes. definitely on my list. I uh, I feel bad for not having seen it already. Well, you'll get there. I'll get there. We we can't have seen everything. That's true. There's only so That's many it. hours in a day. Yes. All right. Well, my number four has already appeared on your list, and it is The Magnificent Seven. Uh, and, yep, I agree with everything you said about it. Uh, it does also have that magnificent score. Uh, it's one of the most famous movie themes, I think, in history. They use it in movie trailers and, and documentaries and everything nowadays. It's so well known. Uh, it, you know, it just—it's one of those things that you hear it and it just makes you feel good. It makes you feel like the movies. You know, I, I love that about it. And of course, it's totally yeah. It's just—it's cool, guys. It's a great film and uh, lots of cool action scenes. So there's really nothing not to like about it. Yes, and a little known fact. Uh, John Williams, who did the, you know the, the music, the theme. All Listen, the if you don't stuff. know who John Williams is, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. That's true. <laughs> Star Wars. Look him up. Uh, but John Williams, he played piano apparently on the uh, on the Magnificent Seven. See that? Even the greats have to start somewhere. Exactly. But an excellent choice. Okay, so where are we to now? My my number four. Yep. Okay, my number four is one you've mentioned. It's uh, Spartacus, directed by Stanley Kubrick. And based on a screen, well, using a screenplay by Dalton Trumbo, there was a recent film about him starring Brian Cranston. Yep. But it's all about the uh, the leader of the slave revolt from the Romans. It's got Kirk Douglas, Lance Olivier, John Gavin, Gene Simmons, Charles Lawton, Tony Curtis. Wow, what a cast! And won four Academy Awards. And it's amazing. It's just amazing story. You get to see this guy. He's a slave, and he becomes a, a gladiator. The training of it, and he goes on, and he becomes this. Becomes this legend this freedom fighter and you have so many classic scenes you know people stand up going no i am spartacus which when i been at music festivals that goes around you shout it out at night and then there's always somebody who'll shout it back right. it's amazing right and it's just it's a wonderful film but as we said before when you mentioned it loads of people will have seen bits and pieces of it because it's usually on you know sunday afternoon your mum and dad probably watched it yep you'd be going well what's this and then you get sucked into it but when you sit down and watch the whole thing it just you go wow that's amazing yeah uh, i'm looking forward to it let me know what you think of it when you see it all in one go i will do that all right well my number three is a real soft spot film for me but it but it but it but it's a film that holds up too so it is disney's the swiss family robinson it's a live action film based on the famous novel about a family that gets shipwrecked uh, and builds a life for themselves on an island and when i was a kid this was one of my favorite movies i watched this movie i remember seeing it in school in elementary school and I loved it. And then we would check it out from the library on VHS and I would watch it all the time. And, and at Disney World, they have the replica of the, the family 
Robinson Treehouse, and that was one of my favorite you know attractions at Disney. And so earlier this year, actually, I took my family to Disney World. I took my kids through the Treehouse. In fact, we went through it twice because my they enjoyed it very much. And so it was really exciting to go through that with my kids. And so when we got back from Disney, we watched some Disney movies that they had kind of experienced things at the parks and they hadn't seen the movies. And one of them was oh, Swiss Family Robinson. And I was excited because I loved it when I was a kid. So we we watched this. I just watched this movie two months ago, and it actually holds up really well. I have to say, it's got some good humor, some good action sequences. It's really clever to watch how they build up this life on the island. Um, there is some unfortunate uh, racial stereotyping with the, the pirates who are Asian. Mm. Uh, I will say, not the most PC version of bad guys ever, but. Barring that, it's a really fun, really great film. It's terrific for a family. Kids of any age can watch it. And I, I really love it. I have to say, I think it holds up really well. And it's it's just a film that I have a real real place in my heart for. So that's my number three. Excellent. It's uh, No, it is a good film. It did make my list. But I, I've, I've also been on the thing in Disney World as well. And it's uh, it's an amazing thing. Once you go in on there and you sit in the film... Yeah, it's great. I like I like the idea of doing that, going to, doing the rides and then watching some of the films. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, very nice. Okay, well, my number three is one you've mentioned. It's the apartment. No surprise there. Yeah, no. It's a co-written, produced, and directed by Billy Wilder, and stars Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray. And of course, Fred McMurray will all know from Flubber. <laughs> original one yeah Flubber our favourite <laughs> yep. although we haven't really talked about the original mostly we talk about the Robert yeah, Williams no, it's remake yeah, but yeah, it's, it's always good to bring Flubber we got Robert Redford and Flubber in this episode I feel like yeah, we're hitting so a, all our greatest hits that's, a, that's some of the callback kids go back and listen to the previous episodes <laughs> and you will, you'll now come back to this and listen and go ha ha it all makes yeah. sense now yeah I see what they did there but anyway uh, The Apartment it's a, a very funny film it's also quite dark as well because about a guy Jack Lemmon wants to climb the corporate ladder and he ends up befriending some Managers who all ask if they can then use his apartment, which is around the corner from the office, for their extramarital liaisons. And it's so, you know, it, that's not very nice, is it? But it's it's good and funny moments. It's got a music by Bert Bacharach. Yeah, another classic and well worth taking a look. All right, well, my number two is based on the H.G. Wells classic book. It is The Time Machine, starring Rod Taylor. Uh, really one of those great, another one of those great 1960s science fiction films. Uh, I was always fascinated with time travel. This, much like Swiss Family Robinson, this is a movie I watched over and over again as a kid. Um, I think it's a really cool film. You know, it was one of the first time travel movies I think I'd ever seen, and I was, I've always been fascinated with the concept. And I think a lot of my love of time travel stories goes back to watching this movie as a kid. I always liked Rod Taylor, uh, largely because of this film. And so I, it's just a classic. It's H.G. Wells. It's time travel. It's the future. It's, you know, it's it, it's a cool film and it holds up really well. So that's my number two. And it is also my number two. All right. All for the same reason you said. And also let's mention the, you know, the cool design of the time machine yeah, itself. Yeah. Yeah. It really is neat looking. And there's also a little callback to this in the films we've, we've went, we've done after the endings for today. Well, the original Gremlins, because there's a, there's a little sequence in that where his dad's at the invention place, and in the background you can see the time machine. Oh, yeah. Somebody's there, yeah. Very it's cool. I that. like that. Nice little but, connective but thread. I like it, yeah, exactly for everything you say. Rod Taylor is so cool in it. Yeah, he really is. And I remember every every other thing I've seen him in, like the birds, and he was also Churchill in, in Glorious Bastards. Mm-hmm, yep. Yep. That was one of the last things. But everything else I've seen him in, I always say, oh, no, he's just a time traveler there. <laughs> that's it. You know, he's, he's traveling around. That's what he did. He right. you know, took up loads of different lives. But it's I love the fact as well, like with the H.G. Wells story, it just he goes so far into the future. Yeah, yeah. It's just brilliant. It's brilliant. Action-packed, but also, you know, the hero is, you know, is super intelligent as well. Time Machine still works well. I watched it uh, a couple of years ago. Still holds up. Yep. Still a great fun one yeah. to watch. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, I know that that was our number two was a joint pick. I have a, a very strong suspicion. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that if our number one isn't the same, Phil, maybe I'll be looking for a new co-host. Uh, but let's see what happens. My number. Hold on. I just need to check what year Flubber came out because I think I've made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> no, God. I think we, yeah. I think we probably got the number one. I think so. It is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Mm, yes. 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 Good thing, Phil. Good thing, or else I might go psycho on you and be like, "What the heck?" No, um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't stalk you in the shower because that would be creepy. Well, mother always said, you know, you <laughs> could be a creepy, but you know. uh, as we know, I'm a big Alfred Hitchcock fan. Uh, psycho is 
hands down my favorite Alfred Hitchcock film. It really had a big impact on me, I have to say. It's one of those movies that, you know, everybody knows the shower scene. I mean, and I, speaking of theme parks, I, you know, I lived in Orlando, I went to Universal. They had this whole Alfred Hitchcock attraction that would deconstruct how the scene was filmed. And I saw that a number of times before I ever even watched the movie. And um, I finally got around to watching it as a young adult, I will say. I was probably in my 20s when I finally saw it, which I think is appropriate. It's not really a film for yeah, kids. Yeah. Um, and I was just blown away by how good it is. The way the sort of the, 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 the twist of you know the lead character sort of changing in it. Anthony Perkins' performance, uh, you know, the, the shooting in black and white, the shower scene is so iconic. I mean, it just – the film works on every single level. It is, it is just – you know, pulse pounding and intense, and it just keeps you hooked from from the first scene to the very last. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's my number one as well. But I I only saw it about ten years ago, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it took me so long to see it. I think part of it was probably one of those things where, oh, everybody's saying, oh, it's, it's a brilliant film. Hitchcock's one one of his best. And you know, part of it was going, well, you know, I haven't seen this far. I don't need to see it. You know, I you know, I'm, I'm cool. I don't need to watch this thing. <laughs> right. But then when I, fi- I finally did get to watch it, I just realized, you know, it was all true. It's brilliant. Uh, there's so much more to it than just the slash, uh, the the shower scene. Yep. Uh, it's yeah, it's probably one of the, the earliest examples of a slasher film, right? As well, you got the whole thing going on, but so many good and the, the whole uh, you know left turn where you're following this person who you think's the star of the film, and then they go and you're going, whoa, oh, what the hell's going on now? What do we do? <laughs> right, it's, I love all that. Right, and Anthony Perkins. Unfortunately, he was dreadfully typecast by it, but you can see why because he was so good in the role. Yeah, he's brilliant. Absolutely. Just amazing. Yeah. But so many – and just the way this – Hitchcock has always builds up the suspense, the camera angles making this house look even creepier. Yeah. Just uh, phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. It is. And, you know, I think a lot of people uh, haven't watched it until later in life because I think a lot of people feel like they've seen it because everyone's seen that shower scene. It's so it's yeah, so famous. Yeah. But I, I think a lot less people have actually watched the movie from start to finish. And it, it's really, really rewarding when you watch it from start to finish because it's totally different than the film that you think it is just from having Yo, seen yeah, yeah. the shower moment, you know. So it's uh, Definitely. It's so much more to it. I mean, because that's like a 30-second scene. Right, right. But it's so pivotal too, you know. It's, yeah, so, yeah. it's so great. But there's so much more to the film than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. So, so good. It is. Well, I'm glad it was your number one film. I think it will be many people's number one for 1960. But if you have a film from that year which you like even more than Psycho, or if you hate Psycho, get in touch either way to let us know what they are or your reasons why you don't like Psycho. So you can email us. You can get in touch on social media. You can leave comments on wherever you're listening to this. You can shout out your window. You probably won't hear that unless you're living next door. But who knows? Yeah, it's worth a try. Uh, yeah, our, our email address is after the ending at verizon.net. And don't forget, uh, please feel free to go and leave us a positive review uh, on any of the podcasting platforms you listen to the show on. It's actually a really big help in uh, getting people to discover us. So we would appreciate it if you could do that. Yeah, and go out and tell all your friends about us. Yeah, spread the word. Spread the word. We're uh, we're firing all cylinders now. So we got to get uh, got to get the word out there a little bit more. Yeah, because because if you've listened this far. It must mean that you like yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Or, or you've accidentally just, you know, clicked play right. on the phone. <laughs> You're a, glut, a glutton for punishment. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, meanwhile, that's going to wrap up. Uh, it's going to start to wrap things up for this episode. Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? Okay, then. Well, next week we'll be doing our top 10 films of 2006. So we're moving a little bit closer to home. And we'll be going after the ending of The Breakup. That's the one with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston. And a little film by the name of Forrest Gump. Well, that should be fun. Yeah, I'm looking so I want to get that. a box of chocolates. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and I might go, uh, you know, running for a bit. <laughs> run, I, Phil oh, yeah. Lorist, run. <laughs> run, Phil, run. And I might go Run, and, uh... Hipster Phil, run. Oh, God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right, well, that's going to wrap us up for now. So, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Check one, check two. Not even listening through my headphones, so I don't even know if that's (laughs) doing anything. Fantastic. Finally, on a trip off the coast of Laos, he discovered an uninhabited island with numerous... Blah, 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 blah. Okay, eventually... numerous blah, blah, blah. Yes, yes, a lot of them, actually. That's why I said it four times. Um, Okay. Finally, on a trip off the coast of Laos, he discovers an uninhabited... He dis... Mm. <laughs> Wait, quick question for you. 
So Mexico built a wall. Who paid for it? Oh, you, we don't talk about that. You have to talk to Clamp. <laughs> Clamp had ideas. Uh, apparently, yeah, I imagine he yeah. did. Yeah. All right. I think South America paid for it. <laughs> that makes that makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good old Wilhelm scream. You've, you've got to point it out whenever it happens. Absolutely. And now so I have to go uh, digging into my sound effects to pull that out. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Ah. Oh, yeah. I'll just, I'll just put your version in. That's almost as good as the real thing. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> except except so you weak. sound more like a, a male fashion model falling down a small staircase. Oh, no, I've fallen. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. I don't know either. <laughs> Some, some kind of generic European oh, accent. Oh, yes, yes. Because apparently there's no American or British male models, just vaguely European male models. No, it all sound like this. <laughs> all right. Let me uh, transition out of that. So, Good luck with that one. <laughs> as long as I'm not in the military. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh, this is the, the, uh, the political episode of After the Ending. <laughs> Uh, so, and this other fact, the second CERN particle accelerator became operational in Geneva. Oh, no, something changed with that, didn't it? What happened? Second, first. That was a really bad Are one. you doing a bit? Are you doing a bit? Was that a bit? I was doing a bit then, but it Oh, didn't man. Land. I was I was confused for a minute. It didn't land. I confused myself. <laughs> yeah.